Please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from, the time, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Fred. As you just heard, we are reading some of what's known as the Psalms of Ascent. We're continuing on in a series that we began last week, uh, looking at what we'll get through this summer, the first half of these Psalms of Ascent. That's 120 through 134. We're going to get 120 through 126 by the end of things. Uh, and this is something like a, what's been called a, a pilgrim songbook for the ancient people of God. These were not just prayers, but these were songs that they would sing as they were slowly making their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the three annual religious festivals that shaped the community, religious, and devotional life of the people of God in ancient times. That was the Passover in the spring, remembering God's deliverance of them from hundreds of years of brutal slavery and genocide. It was Pentecost in early summer, the commanding and commissioning of God's people, and tabernacles in the fall, the ingathering, the blessing of God taking care of them each year. And so these many psalms and songs prepared the hearts of the people on that journey back to Jerusalem. They weren't listening to podcasts. They didn't have Spotify and Apple Music. The music you had was the songs that you sung. And as any of our music does, it ends up shaping you. It shapes your thoughts, your ideas, your outlook. These were the songs that were meant to shape the people of God on their way back to gathered worship with God. It became part of their reconnecting with the story of who he has been for them, the ways that he has delivered them, commanded them, blessed them, and guided them. Uh, and as Eugene Peterson says in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, about this very set of psalms, these psalms can be used to the same effect in our own lives today. They can sharpen our hunger for God, focus our hearts on Him in this long, slow journey of discipleship that is the Christian life, where we, like pilgrims, learn to pursue something bigger than ourselves, something outside the day-to-day, -day, something beyond the quick fix and the shortcuts that really mark so much of what our culture is about today. So I hope this series will help us grow in that slow, patient journey of discipleship with Jesus, of having our hearts pointed in one direction and following that direction over time. And today we're continuing our ascent on this journey with God through Psalm 121, and we're going to focus on just two particular things. We're going to look at the places that we look for help in verse 1, and the help that finds us in verses 2 through 8. So the places that we look for help, and the help that finds us. 
Before we do that, would you bow your heads and pray with me and let's ask God to fill up our time together in his word. Father, we come before you again, having spoken with you, heard from you many times already this morning, but needing to hear from you now, needing to pause to have that that meditative time where we are just slowly with you, where we set down all the things that have been our distractions that have kept us from thinking about you, where we sit down and are still and let you speak. And I pray this morning that you would speak into all the ways that we need to hear you being our champion, being our friend, being even the one who would set us back on the right path, who would warn us about the way that we are going, not because you don't care about us, but because you do. You don't want to see harm come to us. And so you know these hearts in the way that I do not. And so I pray that you would speak to these hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be present and powerful in these hearts this morning? They might hear from you. They might have a sense that the God of the universe sees them and knows them and cares. So please do these things this morning just by your power and your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to go back through the text a little bit together this morning, uh, starting in verse 1 and spend sort of an extended reflection on the places that we look for help. Uh, This is the second psalm in these series of Psalms of Ascent. And last week we talked about how, how repentance, being tired of a life that's going in a direction you don't want it to go, turning away from yourself and the things that you've been leaning on that are taking you that way and coming back to God, that repentance is the first step on this journey. That regret being dissatisfied with the way your life is going and turning back to God, that's the first thing that moves you towards him. That's not the end of your story with God. It's actually the beginning of your story with God. And so the journey goes on from there. Psalm 21 is sung right after taking that first step. Right after that first song of lament and dissatisfaction and calling out to God. And this second psalm helps us see that 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 beautiful moment where we feel like we have been heard from God, that, that he will hear us, can be quickly met by some challenges. And this is true in the Christian life. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you know that that's true, that it doesn't take very long before you run into trouble on the road of the Christian life, before you run into challenges and struggles, before you start to think, is this really for me? Can I keep doing this? Does this speak to where I am, the needs that I have, the hopes that I have, or not? You're going to start to face challenges. Maybe even challenges that feel like they're going to end your journey right there. Verse 3 talks about falling, having your foot slip on a journey that would be dangerous. There weren't just hospitals along the way. That might be the end of your journey. It might make you vulnerable, might make you easy to attack. Or verse 6, talking about the heat, challenges that would be things that would possibly end your life. There are things that you will face in the Christian life that will challenge you. Scripture is honest about that. This is not the case that you join this faith and life easily becomes better and problem-free right away. It certainly becomes better, but it is also going to have challenges. And the psalmist is asking, where in the midst of recognizing these things, when we face challenges, where do we go for help? What do you look to 
when you start to face things that you didn't expect to face, when you start to bump up against something that feels more difficult to handle than you think you can handle. Psalmist is asking that question. When I face trouble on the journey of the Christian life, verse 1, it says, where does my help come from? Maybe you've asked that question. Where am I going to find help for this? Where could I possibly have help for this? Where is this ever going to take a turn? That's the question he's asking. And verse 1 says, as he's asking that question, he's looking around. He lifts up his eyes. It says he looks up to the, to the hills or to the mountains. That word can mean both things. And he's asking that question, where will my help come from? So how does this fit together? Why the looking around? What do these things represent as the psalmist is reflecting on this in his heart? And commentators explain that it could mean a few different things. Uh, David Van Gemeren says that Jerusalem was surrounded by hills and mountains, and so this could be a reference to getting close on your journey. That might be a possibility that you would be dreaming in your heart about arriving at where you want to be. Or that even if you can't see it yet, you are thinking about the place that is the end of the journey. You are past, you are on the other side. I'm sure that each of us in times of deep struggle and pain, whether that's a health crisis, a relational problem, a work problem, have dreamed about being on the other side of that. You thought about what it would be like to be done with this thing. It may be that the psalmist is turning his heart to think about what will it look like to be on the other side. Another possibility that we're going to spend much more time with is one that Eugene Peterson brings up in that same book that I mentioned. He explains that the hills or the mountains could also mean something very different. They could mean temptation to an ancient Israelite that would have heard this psalm, that would have sung this psalm. He says, during the time this psalm was written and sung, Palestine, that was the region, was overrun with popular pagan worship. Much of this religion was practiced on hilltops. It was practiced on mountains, at shrines. He says persons were enticed to the hilltop shrines to engage in acts of worship that were supposed to do a few things. To enhance the fertility of the land, land was very important. You lived or died by what the land would bring to you. Practices that were meant to make you feel good, to protect you from evil, they offered protections, spells, and enchantments against all the perils of the road of life. For example, he puts it in context, do you fear the sun's heat? The heat in the Middle East can be brutal. He says, do you fear the heat when you travel? Verse 6 is referring to the sun's heat. The temptation of the hills might be to say, to go to the sun priest then and pay for protection against the sun god. Go up to the hill to that shrine. Are you afraid of the influence of moonlight? It talks about protecting you from the moon is something that God will do in verse 6. And that, that may be an ancient way of referring to going crazy, essentially through fatigue and anxiety. You've been alone for a long time. You've been on the road for a long time. You're starting to break down. Moonlight could be a reference to that. If that's what you're fearing, the hilltops would say, go up to the moon priestess and buy an amulet to guard against these things. To look to the hills could be a temptation, in other words, to do what everyone else around them was doing. To not be distinct, to not be the people that God had called them to be, but to be comfortable with what's around them, to do what everyone else was doing when it came to challenges and struggles in their lives. To conform 
rather than to follow, to engage in practices, prayers, and payments that ultimately ask something of you to get the help that you say that you need. Things that would require you to put in some effort, some money, right, to buy an amulet, to buy a blessing, to say a prayer, to do a practice. Things that would require you to put in some effort, some higher knowledge, some special right that you needed to get the help that you wanted, to feel a little bit of control amidst uncertainty. But those things, your effort, your trying to find control, ultimately, Scripture would say, only take you farther away from God. The hills take you farther away from God and not closer to God because they are the opposite of relying on Him. Our efforts, our strength, our attempts to control take you farther away from God because they are the opposite of relying on Him to take care of you. The opposite of relying on God is relying on yourself. That's ultimately what these places and practices are. And we certainly have places and practices and repetitions and habits like that in our culture that teach us to rely on ourselves, to not rely even on others at all. We are a hyper-individualistic culture. We would never feel comfortable relying on the grace of others. That would feel shameful. That would feel like you can't take care of yourself. We're not comfortable relying on others, let alone God. This is a major cultural challenge to us. We are tempted to be a people that would go up to the hills, to the DIY religious experience, where you put in the work, the effort, the time, the money, and you get what you came for. But it causes you to rely on yourself. It, it looks like it's taking you towards the thing that you want, but really it's taking you much farther. Because what the journey to and with God requires is not our control, it's his presence. But in our challenges, we are tempted, just like the ancient people of God, to turn to other things that take us farther from God in the name of getting us closer to God. We syncretize, we smuggle things in that we tell ourselves that we justify in some way, this is actually going to get me closer when it has nothing to do with what God would call you to because we long for control. I long for control. I'm sure there are some other controlaholics in here quietly. You won't raise your hands. I'll raise it for you. Each of us, in some way, shape, or form, we want control. And when we don't have it, we start to scramble. That's when we get angry. That's when we get anxious. That's when we get fearful. That's when we turn to things that are destructive for us and destructive to others, when we don't have control. Scripture is full of people struggling when they don't have control and looking to the temptation of the hills, the DIY spirituality, to take care of what they need. Think about Abraham and Sarah. Using an enslaved woman to get the child God said they would have by grace instead of just waiting for him. Think about Jacob deceiving and stealing from his own brother and father to take up the role that God said already he would have instead of waiting for it to happen. Think of King Saul offering sacrifices to start a battle when it looked like he might lose and everyone would run away instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive as he said he would and trusting in the Lord's power no matter what might be happening around him. Scripture is full of people just like you and I struggling to put control, to project control into uncertain circumstances, into things that we feel like are not happening on our timetable 
It's full of people like you and I looking to the hills, to doing something, to having some control, rather than waiting on the Lord. All that so that we don't have to face the journey with God completely by faith. That is perhaps the hardest part of the Christian life, is to let it be completely, 100% by faith. Not by how good you were this week, not by the things that you said or didn't say, not by the things you did or didn't do with your time, with your body, with your resources, with your money, that it is completely by faith in the God who delivers you by grace. That is the hard part that we struggle with lifelong, day in and day out. And there are so many ways that we, that we do that, that we try to have this control, but I want to talk a little bit about the ways that we use power, even in small doses, to avoid having to wait on God. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. That's what Jacob did. That's what Saul does. There's a use of power to try and project control into an uncontrollable circumstance. To avoid having to wait on God and rely on him to do things in his time with his grace and his ways. We use our size, for example. Maybe over others around us, maybe over little ones to project power, to get control over a situation that feels like there's no control. Parents, amen? Maybe just a little bit, right? None of us surely have ever moved a child physically because they just would not stop, right? Surely no one here has done that. We use our status, projecting that we have certain credentials, that we've been around a certain amount of time, that we know certain people to get us in the door someplace when otherwise we might not be let in. We use our, our cunning, perhaps, to be smarter than someone else, to get there first, to get there faster. We use our, our resources, our affection, our level of involvement. We dangle these things in front of other people to get the things that we want, that we feel like we have to have. We push for where we think we have to go, when we think we have to be there, in the way that we say it has to get done. And we do all that in ways that, that diminish, that dismiss, and that hurt others. There are a lot of different ways that we do this, but Diane Langberg in her book, Redeeming Power, helps us see some of them, and I'm going to adapt the quote slightly to fit a broader context, but she says, anytime we use power to damage or use another, we have failed in handling the gift of power. Any use of power based on self-deception or some area where we have told ourselves that what God calls evil is instead good is a wrong use of power. Using the power of position to drive workers into the ground is a wrong use of power. Using the power of success or financial knowledge to achieve ends without integrity is a wrong use of power. Using the power of knowledge to maneuver people to achieve our own ends is a wrong use of power. Using our position in the home, the church, our workplace to get our own way, serve our own ends, crush others, silence them, and frighten them is an ungodly use of power. Using our influence or our reputations to manipulate others is a wrong use of power. This is just something like five or ten examples of the ways that we misuse power. There are countless ways that in an effort to control what we feel we must have, 
We misuse, dismiss, and hurt others. All so that we don't have to face the journey of, of Christianity completely by faith. So that we don't have to wait. So that it would be on our time, not on God's time. Why do we do these things? There's that passage in Romans 7 where, where Paul is just asking that question, why do I do these things? Why is this list of who I am true of me? Why have I gotten here? Why do we do these things? Usually not because we want to be bad. Usually not because we just think, I'm going to be a rude person today. I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be selfish. But because we think, or maybe we only feel at an intuitive subconscious level, that we're protecting something good that we are like Abraham or Saul, that we are doing what we think has to be done, but we're, we're twisting it a little bit. Something that has to happen. It has to happen this way or it won't happen. If I can't see it happening another way, then I've got to do it this way instead of saying, maybe there's something that I can't see. Because we don't see that using bad things to get or to do good things only leads us away from God whose ways are good from beginning to end. If there is some way where we are letting the ends justify the means of the Christian life, we are not following the path of God. We have gone up to the hilltops, to the DIY spirituality. God is good from beginning to end. His ways are good from beginning to end. They are hard from beginning to end. But if we are smuggling in something that makes it easier, something that puts it on our time and our ways, we are not walking in the same direction anymore. It may feel like you are walking forward, but you have made a turn and you are walking away. When we do these things, we are looking for a help that is not God's help. The psalmist is asking, where should my help come from? When I'm facing distress, where does it come from? Our help for life with God, for what he promises and provides, cannot come from outside of God. They have to fit or it is not God. This is what the ancient people of God struggle with time. And again, this is what we struggle with time. And again, saying with our words that we are all about God, we are all about grace, we are exclusively about him, and our actions say something different. Our actions say that it's grace plus my control, that it's grace plus my effort, it's grace plus my timeline, my smarts, my looks, my personality, it's grace plus my being able to perform in a certain way that would make sure that people love me and see me as valuable. This is the challenge of the Christian life, that it is Christ plus nothing. But that is so hard. It is so, so hard. Because his way leads through faith. And faith, by definition, requires us to let go of control. Faith is this. That's a picture of faith. Letting go. You have nothing in your hands. You're not holding on to anything. You are just completely open to what God would do. It is so hard because it requires letting go of control. The hills are all about control. But in faith, God offers us something very different. He offers us not a help that we have to go out and get, but a help to get to our second point that comes to find you, a help that finds us. 
That's what the psalmist spends most of this passage talking about, is a help that seems to actually come and find you. It's not far off that you would have to travel. It's not expensive that you would have to go and buy it on yourselves from these hilltop shrines. Rather, it's a help that seems, if we go through these verses, to come and find you. Let's look back at verses 2 through 8. The person in need isn't pictured in these verses as doing anything. It's all God doing something for them. Verses 3 through 4. It says, He, God, will not let you slip and fall. He won't lie down on the job or take a break. He won't slumber or sleep. Verse 5, it says, He, God, is your keeper. It's the one who watches over you. He's the one who gives you shade when it's hot, cover when you are afraid. Verse 6, so that you won't be overwhelmed. Not so that you can then take care of yourself, but so that he takes care of you the whole way through, day or night, morning or evening. Verse 7, he will keep watch over you from all evil. He will watch over your entire life. Verse 8, he will watch over your going out on the journey and your coming in from it, from now until forever. At all times. God's the one doing all the helping, all the watching, all the keeping at all times for the person who finds himself in need. The psalmist is painting a picture of a help that comes to find you, that seeks you out, not one you find and have to pay for, not one that you work for by your own power, but one that in love uses its own power, the power, verse 3, of the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the cosmos, the king of kings and lord of lords, uses his power not for himself, but for those who are in need, to protect you, to shelter you. This is how the Christian God is with us. He cares about you. And this is what we see in the face of Jesus Christ coming to earth in the incarnation. God himself coming down face to face to help his people in these ways. To find us and more than that, to even become one of us in our problems so that his help would be personal, close, relatable, not so far off in the hills that would only be available to some, only be available to those who had enough money. Jesus comes as poor and that there is no basement below him. There is no floor that he can't reach where you don't have the resources, you don't have the time, you don't have the background, so you don't have Jesus. No, he comes to the bottom so that everyone might have this kind of help. Close up, available, free. There is no more perfect picture in all of Scripture of God himself doing what this psalm says that God does than Jesus Christ coming in the incarnation. Who, like Jesus, can be said to have never let his people's foot slip in delivering them from the danger of sin? Has your foot ever slipped in delivering yourself from the danger of sin? Jesus never slipped Never once let us hang in the balance. Never was once careless or thoughtless about our souls. Never once put himself and his needs in front of our needs, but said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Who, like Jesus, can be said to have never gotten tired of pursuing his people? Is there anyone in here that is tired of pursuing someone in your life? Tired of being gracious with someone? 
tired of being patient with someone here in your family, at CTK, in your work? Who, like Jesus, has never gotten tired of stubborn, hard-hearted people walking away? People who are unappreciative of him. People who are opposed to him. You see Jesus in the Gospels is patient and gentle time and time again because he does not get tired of pursuing his own people. Who like Jesus doesn't have to stop life from being exhausting to help you survive it? Who like Jesus can let overwhelming things come and still take care of you in the midst of this? Who can let it be and simply give you shade when it's hot? Who can let you stand amidst these circumstances so that the heat might rage and burn, but it won't touch your soul? So that anxiety might shine in the night, but it can lead you off the path that finds God at the end? Who, like Jesus, can be said to watch over you in the path of his resurrection so that there is no evil that can touch you in this life, that he can't give back in goodness in the life to come? Who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven and even now is seated at the of God the Father Most High said to watch over your coming and going out for this day and all your days for all time with the power, Hebrews says, of an indestructible life. You and I, friends, know we are fragile. It only takes another visit to the doctor where something comes up that you weren't expecting to know that we are fragile. Jesus lives in an indestructible life by the power of his grace every moment of every one of our days on earth, watching over, interceding, caring for, in unceasing power and generosity. Who is like Jesus? Who in our world could fill out what this psalmist asked for? What philosophy in our world could fill out what this psalmist asks for? What spirituality, what religion can fill out what this psalmist asks for? What you and I ask for? Someone to be there and to never give up, no matter what you are like. Who is like Jesus? That's the question of Scripture. There is help to be found in the cosmos that comes to find you and that gives you the help of God just by grace, not for a price. It's Jesus Christ incarnate, God in the flesh that came down to find you out of love and paid the price to deal with your problems out of his own pocket. God upends the system of the world where you have to come and pay. He comes so that you might not have to pay. He pays for you, hanging on the cross to spare you the heat of sin and death that you could not stand so that his grace would be your shade and his life would be your power. And because he provides all of this himself, all you have to do is this. Just open your hands and receive it. Not in your control, not in your abilities, in his power, in his grace. Just open the hands of your heart and receive what he would give to you by grace. Let go. Let go of going up to the hills. Let go of our uses of control and power for ourselves because life with God 
is something that can only be received when we let go of control. And if we're honest, he's going to have to be the ones, the one to open our hands, right? To pry our hands off the steering wheel. And that's the conviction that we have of Scripture. Even if you feel like I can't let go, it's the grace of God that teaches you to let go. Even if slowly, even if only over time, you are never from the beginning to the end in this on your own, in this where you have to put something in the pot or it doesn't happen. From the very outset, from your unwillingness to let go, God is there by his grace to teach you to let go. So how do we do that? How do we let go more practically this week? I want to encourage you to do two things, to ask where your help comes from and to let him do it. First, I want us to try and find opportunities where we can ask, where is my help coming from in this? Where, where do I think it comes from by my actions? To stop yourself in a moment where you're starting to feel angry, you're starting to feel anxious, you're starting to feel upset, whatever it is, if you can, put a post-it note, a reminder, whatever it is, put it somewhere that you're going to see it to ask yourself, where in this moment do I say that my help comes from? What am I looking to for help with this? Is it in some way, shape, or form me? Am I the only one? Is there some other thing that's not God that I'm relying on, something that's, that's fragile, that's temporary, that's unpredictable, uncontrollable that I'm relying on? See if you can catch yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to help you let go of being your own help and to receive even just a little bit from him. Even just asking that question can give us just a little space in between those feelings, those things that we're wrestling with, and say, where do I feel my help comes from right now? Even if you can't shake it and you feel like you still want that thing to be your help, there is the slightest opening. And there's a lot of daylight that can come through a small, tiny opening. Ask yourself this week, where do I think my help comes from. And second, to let him do it, to let him, to let God be the one who helps. Let it be on his terms. Let it be on his timeline. There may be things that you need help with that you don't even see right now. I, when, I, when I talk to people that are going through difficult things, some of you all have heard me say this, that, that there's what we see and that there's often what God is doing right? There is a small thing that we feel like we have to decide on this. It feels massive. We're right here. It's in our face. We can't get it out of our vision. We have to make this decision. Do I go here? Do I go there? Do I move forward with this person? Do I move back? And God cares deeply about that thing, but so often there is so much around that that God wants to do, that God wants to give you more peace. That he wants to give you more confidence that no matter what happens with this one tiny incident, that he's for you. He wants to give you more kindness, more perseverance, more gentleness, more self-control. If things are only on our timelines, only under our control in our ways, all we get is the tiny thing that we want. And God wants to give you so much more than that. Let him do it his way that you might not have less, but more. Let him give the help that he wants to give, that he knows that you need and not just the help that you're asking for. Let your help come from the Lord and you will be kept in his way no matter where it leads. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a few moments for you to talk to God in your heart about some of the things that we've just talked about, about anything in our service.
maybe thanking God for being a help that comes and finds you, that doesn't expect you to come chasing him down. Maybe confess the ways that, if we're honest, we just keep going up to the hills. We can't help it. We keep going back to control and ask God to to attend to you, to watch over you, to help you, to be who you can't be. Let's pray. God, we pray that just by your grace you would hear these prayers and answer that you would be the help that comes and finds us. In your son's name we pray, amen.